Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at lionelracing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to lionelracing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I'm the best there ever was. I mean, if you don't believe me, you can read it right here in the Grand National Scene. Boys, just get it close. I'll make up the difference. We were on the back of the truck when he came in, he came in there and basically said, you know, that SOB wrecked. And then the other SOB come over and run his mouth. Little known fact. Junior wanted to get rid of Kale Dent. Right, he wants to go? Go ahead. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, we are recording this on Monday, January the 25th, and this episode is scheduled to drop on Wednesday, January 27th. Do you know the significance of that date of January the 27th? Ah, uh, no, but I think I'm about to learn what it is. <laughs> As of Wednesday, Jeannie and I will have been married 25 years. Hey, congratulations, Rick. 25 years. And what she got to show for it? Nothing. About 32 years of newspapers. <laughs> that poor woman. <laughs> How long have you and Margaret been married? Are you ready for this? I'm putting you on the spot. Do you know? Uh, yes, I do know. Okay, do the math real quick. <laughs> 50 years. 50 years. Really? That's correct. She is a strong, strong woman. Oh, she she has been a rock. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Steve, this week we are going to share the second segment of our interview with Jeff Hammond. It was one thing for Jeff Hammond to work with Daryl Waltrip during their days together at Junior Johnson and then on the Tide car and Western Auto car and all that, but it was something else altogether to work against him <laughs> before DW started driving for junior Johnson and associates. There was a fierce rivalry between Kale Yarbo, who was junior's driver before Daryl 
and of course, Daryl himself. And there was no love lost between these two. And if there was no love lost between Kel and Daryl, there was no love lost between Kel's crew and Daryl. Right. Jeff also remembers the 1979 Daytona 500. We've talked about it before, but we have discussed so many races that are such a part of the NASCAR legend. And certainly the 1979 Daytona 500 is right up there at the very top. It changed the future for NASCAR. Absolutely. Helped transcend it from a regional sport to a national entity. But for an event that we think that we know so well, it is always so cool to hear about something that happened during that event and another perspective that we didn't know. And so I don't know, Jeff's story is a pretty cool story and it adds just one more layer to an event that is so big in NASCAR history. Well, like you said, there's several layers to that event and it's always fun to hear of one more. As exciting as the start of that season was for Kel Yarbrough and Junior Johnson and Associates, that year, their streak of championships was broken. That streak did come to an end. You have that kind of success, and anything less than a championship is going to be a disappointment, and it certainly was a disappointment in 1979. But then in 1980, Kel decides to leave Junior Johnson and – Let's just say that Junior evidently wasn't too happy with that decision. <laughs> well, no, he wasn't. Kale came and told him that he didn't want to run a full schedule any longer, and it thought best to move on. And Junior did not appreciate it <laughs> <laughs> no. at all. <laughs> Steve, then in our second segment, we are going to go back to the June 8th, 1978 issue of Grand National Scene. That issue featured coverage of Kel Yarbrough's win at Nashville that Jeff mentions in his interview. Kel didn't just win that race. He wasn't just dominant. He was something that was way beyond what it means to be dominant that night. Almost way beyond belief as well. (laughs) (laughs) He started on the outside of the front row. He took the lead from pole sitter Lenny Pond on the first lap. He proceeded to lead every single lap of that 420-lap event. Absolutely incredible. Thank you, Lord, that there was no Twitter and no social media <laughs> oh, back then. <laughs> didn't even think about that, Rick. It would have melted down. We actually went through the September the 1st, 1978 issue a few weeks back. So, Steve, this must have been a pretty awesome stretch of content. Uh, Yeah, it was, Rick. I remember 1978 being somewhat of a very pivotal year, Uh, not just because Kale was dominant that year, but there were some new, fresh faces coming on board that were making some starts back then for the first time in their careers. One of them was Dale Earnhardt. This might be the second time that we've ever done consecutive issues for our issues of the week. But when you think about it, we had a 32-year run of awesome content and we'll get around to every single issue sooner or later. (laughs) You're right, Rick. That was a very long streak of good content, but that's what the staff of scene was all about. Well, here's another way to look at it. We do an issue of the week and I think I counted one time. We had about 2000 issues total that were published. You think we can last for 2000 episodes? (laughs) I hope so, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) We better move on before we get off the rails on that one. (laughs) Yeah, might be doing mine from the wheelchair, but we'll do it. (laughs) Steve, this week, we do have new Patreon support from Joe Zampetti and also Tim Mikulski. So Joe and Tim, welcome aboard. You guys are part of the team now. You help put this episode together. You help make it possible. And you're going to be helping us make future episodes possible, all the way to 2,000 episodes, evidently. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you very much. And I do appreciate that. So please help us out on Patreon, support us on PayPal, whatever you can do. We would appreciate it. Doesn't matter how much or how little, anything would help. So if you can help us out on a monthly basis, you can do that at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support 
you can do that via paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. There was this young driver back then by the name of Daryl Waltrip. And from what I understand, he didn't exactly get along with Kale uh, too well. <laughs> and if Kale didn't like him, I'm assuming that Kale's team didn't like him. What was the team viewpoint on Daryl Waltrip in the late 1970s? I can say this here. <laughs> You can say it. He was nothing but a smart ass. I mean, Darryl? that's all it was. That's all it was. It was a smart ass. Yeah. And it's like, for example, you know, he was he was supposedly, quote unquote, supposedly the king of Nashville. You know, he was the king of this and the king of every short track. I, I'm I'm the best there he ever was. I mean, if you don't believe me, you can read it right here in the Grand National scene. <laughs> <laughs> he could talk some smack. Um, but. Because of that, I think he motivated us to make sure he didn't. And the one year, I remember it was a year, I think it was uh, 78. I could be wrong on, on the year, but I, I think, I'm pretty sure it was 78 because that's when Herb Nab had left and he'd gone to work uh, for Harry Rainier and Lenny Pond was the driver at the time. Lenny went to Nashville, sat on the pole. We sat outside pole. They dropped the green flag. Lenny never led a lap that night. We led 402 or 403 out of a 410-lap race yeah. at Nashville. And no, no Lenny Pond and definitely no Daryl Walter. <laughs> so we go back the fall, the, the, yeah. you know, the summer race, or uh, Back then, you know, we were pretty sh close as far as, you know, when you went to both races, almost back-to-back. -back. But we get back there again, everything repeats. We wound up Lenny Pond on the pole. We wind up being outside. We take off this time, and I think we led 408 or 410 out of the 420 laps yeah. that you're up there with. My point about the smart-ass being uh, – Daryl was – we were down in the garage area, and, you know, pretty much everybody ran the same cars. You only had a speedway car and a, and a short track car. Well, he said, you boys can't do that again. We're getting ready to show you something. We got us a brand-new piece here, and we're, we're getting yeah. ready to put it on you. I mean, just, just remember that right now. I said, okay, fine. You know, we looked up at him, and everybody working on the 11s. You know, so, well, all you got to do is just do it. And he didn't do it again. I mean, he didn't. He couldn't. He couldn't. K.O., I mean, just put a whooping on him. And... As I said, him being a smart ass like that, I think motivated us a lot. And, you know, those those are the kind of fun times that you can't ever forget because they were so in your face and definitive of how good Cale Yarbrough was. Um, a lot of times people ask me, what's the difference between Cale and, and Daryl? You know, you've worked with both of them. Cale Yarbrough had a little favorite saying. He'd tell it to her. He'd tell it to... Travis and Tim Brewer, boys, just get it close. I'll make up the difference. I mean, that man, you know, I, I call him short man, but that some gun, he was a bull in a china shop when it comes to driving a race car. Just, you know, that thing may have been a beast to handle, but he'd figure out some way to get it up front and be in contention for the win. And there's some days hotter than blue blazes outside, and that's when he liked it the most. You make it hot and slick, and Kel Yarbrough was the guy you were going to have to outrun because he figured out a way from staying on that farm down in uh, South Carolina. He was heat-treated and tougher than a pine knot. Daryl, on the other side, I mean, he was smooth as silk, and he made the car do all the work. He was a smart race car driver. He'd work you to death getting the car right so he wouldn't wear himself out, and he'd have something left at the end of the day. Um, privileged to have you know, worked for both of them because of what I was, again, able to understand and develop an understanding for what drivers need and sometimes when they need something it's because they're looking at it at a different perspective and figuring out how to understand drivers lingo and watching the car and watching what they're doing and try to give what they need as i was doing research it kind of dawned on me that you've been 
a part of some pretty historic races. Mm-hmm. And you were in the pits for the 1979 Daytona 500 working for one of the principals in that very famous incident mm-hmm. on the backstretch. What do you remember about that day? They flash across the stripe and white flag for Donnie Allison. They're back in turn one. Last lap, Donnie Allison is 20 car lengths back of brother Bobby. Donnie leads Cale Yarbrough by two car lengths. They're one groove from the top of the racetrack, and Cale's Bush Oldsmobile stays aligned right on the back bumper of Donnie Allison. They're out of turn two. They're down the back stretch. Here goes Cale on the inside. Cale makes the move. He's down very close to the grass. Donnie tries to shut him off. Cale's in the grass. Cale loses it. He tries to pull it back. Donnie side by side. They make contact. Both head toward the wall. They hit the wall in turn number three. We'll have a new leader. We've got them diving down into the infield now as we look for the leaders coming up the back straight away. They are in turn two in front of Mike Joy. Here comes Richard Petty. He leads Darrell Waltrip by five car lengths. Five more lengths back to A.J. Foyt. Race traffic. Waltrip closes, but Petty is up there. Caution is on the racetrack, and it will be a battle back to the start-finish line. Heavy traffic in three. Waltrip running right behind Petty. A.J. Foyt is right there. They move to the high side. They want to pass Ty Scott. Richard brings him to the four. Richard Petty takes the outside. He's got Darrell Waltrip close behind. Two car lanes back to A.J. Foyt. Richard Petty takes it under the trioval. He's got the advantage right now. Here they come to the stripe. Richard Petty's STP Oldsmobile. Waltrip dives to the inside. Petty almost put him off in the grass. And Richard Petty will win the Daytona 500. The Petty crew jumping up and down on pit road, congratulating each other. This Daytona 500 has had it all. Donnie Allison, Cale Yarborough crash in turn three on that final lap. Well, remember we had uh, had the big snow up and down the East Coast, which didn't affect us directly, the snow part of it, but the rain that came, came along with it had really made the racetrack and around the surrounding areas um, difficult, challenging, because we didn't have the jet dryers that we do today. And NASCAR did a, you know, a pretty dang good job of getting ready to go because you know, had CBS sitting there kind of pushing, let's go, let's go. We get, got a live broadcast getting ready to start here, and, and they were under the gun. So the weather had, had really kind of you know, tam- dampened everybody's spirits to a certain degree. And what I remember you know, is we started under caution, and they finally turned them loose. And we, you know, we had a good race car, and we were right to where we needed to be. And uh, battling, you know, with Bobby Allison and Donnie, and it, those two guys uh, were battling each other pretty hard. Richard was in the mix. Uh, AJ Fort was there. You know, even Daryl. I remember I, every, the normal cast of characters was up toward the front doing their thing. But what happened was we go off. They went off into one, and I think it was Bobby got loose right in front of Donnie, and then Donnie got into him, and we were right in behind it. But everybody spun. Not a lot of hard contact between the, the the cars or the wall, but they spun down to the inside of the apron and got off the racetrack. And that was grass. Down, well, there wasn't much grass. There was a lot of water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but everything was muddy down there, and I never will forget Kale um, Radio and saying, "I need I need help. I need help. What you know? Couldn't figure out what was what kind of help you needed, and we didn't have televisions inside." the pit areas at that time we were having to listen to the um speakers from the you know the track broadcast that was going on and every and we were able to also talk to some of the mrm reporters of the day and we but long story short kale got stuck and they didn't throw the red flag back then you know this kept running you know they just avoid all the rescue equipment and that was a big thing then so Finally got a record to him and got him out of the mud. Well, we'd lost several laps because of that. And he came in, and we, I mean, I never forget, you know, Junior saying, get everything out of money. So we jacked the car up, and in between, you know, each lap around, we kept pulling stuff out and straightening the front of the, uh, the fenders back out. Come to find out, we weren't really hurt bad at all, but we had lost the laps. And as I said earlier, we had a fast race car. So what did – we wind up doing, we'd race our way back up and got ourselves in, in basically second place and behind the leader, which turned out to be Donnie Allison. Well, fortunately for us, you know, they had several caution flags. Well, every time caution come out, we had to race the leader back to the start-finish line to get your back, lap back. He kept doing it. At same place, same move every time. And to Donnie's credit, I think he challenged Kale the first couple times very little because, okay, 
We still got him down, you know, two laps at that time. I think we were three laps down. He unlapped himself. And then same thing again, unlapped himself. The next thing you know, caution comes out. And this time, Donnie races Kale kind of hard. But Kale still got around him, got back on the lead lap. Game was on. I mean, everybody knew that these two guys had the fastest race cars. We could easily separate ourselves from Richard Petty, A.J. Ford, Daryl Walter at the time. And, you know, we're racing him, racing And everybody, it was kind of like, you know, it was a given. We're getting ready to win the Daytona 500. That's what I'm sitting there thinking. And at an early age, I got a really hard lesson that just because you see him go uh, across start finish line and they're in the right position, <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. And I, I, I distinctly remember Kale in perfect position on Donnie when they did cross start finish line. And we could hear the call being made by the track announcer. You know, Kale and Donnie battling it out in turn one. Uh, Kale's right on his back bumper. He gives him a little bit of room off of t- as they go through turn two. Coming off of turn two, Kale Yarbrough makes the move to the inside. Yeah. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, deja vu. This is going to be the fourth time today that he's going to put put it on Donnie. And I do hear, remember, there's contact. There's contact between the 11 and the 1. Allison yeah. and Yarbrough are hard at it, beating and banging, going down the back straightaway. They get into three, and I remember that I heard them say, yeah. And they're around. They're in the wall. I mean, we couldn't see none of it. Oh, but yeah. We could hear every bit of it. And I'm looking at Junior, and I'm looking at everybody else around there. I mean, he's like, what's going on? You know, what's going on? But he never come back. Here come, you know, Richard off of uh, four with A.J. in tow along with the, with Daryl, and they made a, you know, a gesture, but no really challenge to, to him, and so he wins the race. And same thing as before, you know, they're talking about Richard Petty, and it may have been after Richard and him had come by and came down Pitt Road, whatever reason, track announcer, and they're fighting on the back straight <laughs> on, 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 down in the infield or whatever. It's like, what? Yeah. Jackie, over in turn three, we interrupt for a moment. Kale and Donnie, both out of the cars. Bobby Allison has brought his car down there. A furious discussion taking place just down below the banks of turn number three. And now it appears we may have a fist fight. We see drivers and helmets, safety officials trying to jump in there and separate them as tempers have really flared after this amazing incident on the final lap coming into turn number three. They They battle on the ground at this time, and we can't see as others come running in to surround and try to separate those drivers. Another lesson in life with Junior Johnson. Junior hadn't, hadn't said anything. And he kind of like everybody else, he kind of looked up at the announcers, the speaker. Henry Benfield, Charlie Reed, and was one other guy, took off running toward turn four. And I started to go. And I remember for, for whatever reason, I said, wait a minute. That's a long way. <laughs> uh, it was more importantly, you know, I'm not – I need what's Junior doing? Yeah. And Junior put his radio, took his radio off and went over and put it back in the little container box and um, started picking the rest of the stuff up in the pits. Junior did? Junior did. Wow. And I started doing the same thing. I picked, I picked our stuff up just like, you know – we do on any other uh, Sunday and started loading our stuff up, you know, there's nothing I can do. It's over. It's done. And I remember going in the, in the garage area and automatically, you know, you're, you're hearing and seeing who wrecked who, who did what. Didn't, didn't have a clue. You know, Kale finally came, you know, to the hauler drivers back then. They didn't have motor homes to go hide in or anything. Like I said, everything came to the hauler. And we were on the back of the truck when he came, he came in and basically said, you know, that SOB wrecked me. And then the other SOB come over and run his mouth. And, you know, so it, it wasn't any – I didn't know a whole lot more then until really the next day with all the writers yeah. and, and able to do that and able to go back and finally – you know, even CBS didn't have um, – 
instant replay like like they do today. You know what I'm saying? You couldn't right. go to a sports right. network yeah. and expect to see. Only time you saw anything was the highlights that were on the local news or your area which you were in. So a lot of unanswered questions went on all the way really to to Rockingham the next week, and couldn't believe that they both wrecked again <laughs> at the start of the race. And they're, yeah. you know, one was on a pole, one was on the outside pole, and here we go again. But it it was never there was always a difference of opinion and a difference of the view that you were which which windshield you were looking out of, and to this day. I never, I've never felt like that. Donnie Allison did anything wrong, and I, and I didn't think Kale did anything wrong. It was just one of those hard racing situations that ended up with a bad result, that that wound up being a great thing for our sport. Uh, subsequently, you know, the fight and everything like that. I mean, it just it showed the passion and the fact that no nonsense that these guys will not put up with, and. You know, a lot of people ask you about it. You know, what was it like to be there? It was surreal. It really was because there was like an unusual calmness yet unbelievable um, attitude of what had just occurred. And I, I just think it was it was funny to see Junior and Hall Sellington, you know, talking about it from their viewpoints. To this day, I mean, I think that uh, I hate using it this kind of a, this kind of cliche, but it was kind of cool to be a part of. I mean, when <laughs> yeah. history was made, it was it was just wow. I mean, and you don't understand the magnitude of what went on that day until you've been in the sport as long as I have. And I know you, from your vantage point, you know you understand what I'm getting ready to say. What does everybody always show about Daytona? You always get a glimpse. I mean, it's been less and less. But everybody goes back to that point in history at Daytona, and, and they highlight that because that was the day that NASCAR, in my opinion, was really discovered because the whole country had an opportunity to, to see what we had already knew was going on, which was this, this animal is growing. This monster is getting ready to get bigger. And it did. I mean, it kept making more strides forward each and every day from that point in 1979. We we had superstars, and we had a sport that was worth viewing and supporting and being a fan of from that day on. You mentioned earlier the fact that when you won your first championship, you wanted to win another one, and you did, and you won three in a row. Mm-hmm. But in 1979, that was the year that Kale's streak was broken. And while it would have been a good season for most, it wasn't quite the same in 1979 as it had been in the previous years. Was there a danger of maybe being, I don't want to say too successful, but if you win three championships in a row, anything else is going to be a disappointment? Yes, and yes again. Because that's that's the way you you, the time in my period of my career in my life, that's what you're expected to do. I mean, I think that you know when you look at all major sports, you know you got these super teams, you got these moments in um, history where you can't beat the New York Yankees, um, you can't overcome the Boston Celtics or the L.A. Lakers. You know, they were just like super teams or the Green Bay Packers. You know, you have that dynasty, that legacy. And I think it was uh, uh, the beginning of, of what could have been for even a guy like Junior Johnson. If he, he just started showing that when Junior Johnson put the right people in his vehicle, in his car, and they did the right things together, they're pretty unstoppable. And he hadn't been able to do that until he got Kale in there. And Kale really uh, had an opportunity to run all the races, and, and Junior had everything that he needed to, to put it all together. Um, always, always a factor at certain races back even, you know, when he made, basically made his return to racing. When I say that with the Chevrolet Monte Carlo uh, in the early 70s with Charlie Glotz back at Charlotte. 
But Junior was getting better and better and better. He was getting, you know, some some a shot in the arm from Chevrolet. I think that's. I think that was kind of like the beginning. And Junior, it, I think, got tired of Richard Petty and David Pearson winning championships and him not being able to claim fame to that. I think that it. Uh, he wanted to join the ranks of the Petties and Bud Moore, you know, because he made a commitment to do that. 79 was um, a reality check, I think, for all of us because it's almost like Kale made it look easy. Yeah. You know, winning nine, ten races, nine, ten races. I mean, I know that, you know, winning a large number of races is not unheard of in our sport because Richard did it a lot. But Richard was in a different league because he ran all the races, anything that they had. And a lot of people just, they didn't have the taste for it or the stomach to be able to try to do it all. And he, he knew how to take and maximize his resources and turn them into championships. But I think the other thing is that winning championships and winning races was just starting to become more of a, a value. You know, you could actually run with a decent sponsor and make money. You know, and not make just good, make money, make good money, and I think that was the other, uh, motivating part of you know Junior's commitment to run like he did and coming up with parts and pieces that could withstand it. I mean, that was the other thing that we had the advantage on. Because uh, when you go back and you read, a lot of times it wasn't people crashing as much as it was they couldn't com complete what they started. Yeah. And we built our we. I know Junior also always used to harp on us. Make sure it doesn't. We don't have a mechanical failure, whether with hubs, with brakes, engines, transmissions, the vehicle themselves. You know, don't make something lighter that's going to break. Um, make it durable. I mean, a lot of times that's the reason why we did so well is our stuff completed 500 miles, 600 miles. You know, 500 laps at Bristol. You know, we just wore people down. Having laps on the field for Junior Johnson and, and, and Kale Yarborough and even Daryl Walter was not unheard of. And it was against better equipment than it's ever been in the sports history at that time. But still, the way that we went at it, we turned more RPM. We did, we did a lot of things that nobody else could do. And that was because Junior was an innovator and he was able to figure things out, I think, at that time better than anybody else. We didn't have uh, the ability to put an engine on dyno and run it 24-7 to see what part failed whenever we failed it. You know, we wouldn't take something to failure. Didn't have the time or the resources. But Junior did enough of it, and he knew what he was looking for, that we came up with cranks that didn't break, Harmon har uh, harmonicers, harmonic, harmonic balancers that didn't, you know, come apart. The little things that a lot of times put people out of business during the course of a race, I mean, I'm just looking through the Grand National scene of yesteryear, and you see all the part failures that put people behind the wall. We didn't, we didn't have that problem. Just didn't have that problem. And uh, not to say it was 100% bulletproof, but it was dang close. At what point did you find out that Kel was going to be leaving? Uh, he came to us, I guess, right around Charlotte race uh, of 80. And uh, I remember when we found out about it, you know, we were battling still for a championship. And Junior wasn't real, real happy about it. And he wasn't happy that Kale was going to leave. Okay. Even, right. even, and okay. we were, I mean, like saying, we're battling for a championship. And I, I'm not 100% sure how many races that were left when it came out at that time. But I do distinctly remember we knew that Kale was going to go and join MC Anderson, they were going to run a limited schedule. Benny Parsons was driving for MC Anderson at the time. Junior knew Benny. Benny was from Wilkes County. And so, little known fact, Junior wanted to get rid of Kale then. All right, he wants to go. See you. <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. And I, if I'm correct, Benny was still in contention for a championship also with the number of races we had left. And Junior said, hell, I'll take Benny, y'all take Kale, and we'll try to win the championship. I I, you know, I'm not – and this is you – know, like I say, it hurt Junior's feelings. Yeah. So understand what I'm getting ready to say was more out of 
couldn't believe he was doing it after all of what I've done for you type attitude. Uh, and that was, I don't want to help you win another championship. I'm not going to quit. I still want to win. But in winning, I may get you a championship. And then you're going to take it down to Savannah, Georgia? I don't think so. You know? So he was, he was more motivated to try to help Benny do it. You know, he'd, he'd get behind that and rather than helping Kale do it. So, I mean, we, we were not quite as sharp at the end of 1980 as we should have been because I just don't think the, the junior really wanted him to win a championship. And Dale tried his best to give away the championship at Ontario. Mm-hmm. And you doggone came close to it anyway. Yeah, we came close, close to it anyway, but uh, it just didn't work out. And – that was that that closed the chapter of Junior Johnson and Cal uh, Yarber. Benny Parsons taking it very easy now. He's uh, all by himself on the track. The race is still between Bonnet and Yarborough. Bonnet uh, holding off Yarborough, but he's a little a half a car length in front of him as they go into two. You can almost see the smile on Benny Parsons' face as he comes out of two, but the battle continues for the second spot as Yarborough has a one half car length advantage over Bonnet. Neil may try to take the inside line. He does. They're side by side, halfway down the back straight. Parsons has the lead, and they are side by side coming down the back straight away for second spot. Bonnet puts it in front of Yarborough as they go battling down to turn four. The leader, Benny Parsons, his last time through turn four on his way to victory. Bonnet and Yarborough nose to tail in the heart of four. As they come down to the line, Benny Parsons will win the Los Angeles Times 500. Here he is taking the checkered flag, and Mike Joy, here comes the battle for second. Three seconds behind him, diving to the inside is Cale Yarborough. He moves the Junior Johnson Chevrolet up to within two feet of Neil Bonnet, and Bonnet will get second at the wire. Neil Bonnet finishes second. Yarborough will be third by that margin of just about a foot at the checkered flag as Benny Parsons has won the Los Angeles Times 500. Steve, when Kel Yarborough was still with Junior Johnson and he was winning championships and he was winning races, he was racing Darrell Waltrip tooth and nail every week. And Steve, from what I understand, I wasn't a part of the sport back then. There wasn't a whole lot of love lost between Carol <laughs> and DW. And if Kale didn't like DW, his team certainly didn't like DW. What Steve, how did all that get started? Well, I guess it was a clash of personalities, shall we say. Uh, back then, Daryl was really something of a wise guy. He didn't mind pulling the noses of other established stars back then. And that was, uh, there was some method in his madness because he was trying to get attention. And that's exactly what he got, attention. And a lot of fans and a lot of drivers didn't like him. And Kale was one of them. And that happened after a race at Martinsville, 500 miles at Martinsville, very hot summer day. When that race is over and Kale won, he was just sweaty, just worn out, just very, 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 very tired. And he made the mistake of saying that 500 miles of Bartonsville was too long. Well, you can just imagine how President Clay Earls thought of that. And he said, I am not shortening my races. Well, Daryl hooked up on that. And after the next race, which Daryl won, Daryl said, well, you know, on the Kale scale of one to ten, this is about a five. <laughs> so he created the Kale scale. <laughs> well, Kale got his revenge at a race at Darlington, in which Kale was involved. And DK Ulrich was involved in it too. And he came up to Kale and said, Man, why did you hit me? And Kale said, I didn't hit you. Oh, Jaws hit you. Jaws is a guy who hit you. Jaws being, of course, <laughs> Daryl running his mouth. So it was Jaws and the Kales girl all the way through that season. I want to go back to this shortening the race at Martinsville thing. A few weeks back, we talked about Kale talking about maybe slowing the cars down at Daytona and Talladega. And here he is wanting to shorten the race at Martinsville. <laughs> you can imagine like i said you can imagine claire Earl's response to that that's where daryl seized on the idea to create the kale scale and after every race whether you asked him or not 
Dale would say, I'll rate this one on the kale scale for you, boys. This was a four. This is a five all year long. Well, you know, the comments that would be made today would be, well, he's just a wimp. He's not a real man if he don't want to run 500 laps at Martinsville or if he wants to slow the cars down at Daytona and Talladega. He's just a wimp. Yeah, he ain't a course. real man. You're yeah. not going to – don't call Cal a wimp now, for heaven's sake. Don't do that. <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing. Go ahead. Say that and then step back because <laughs> you ain't going to like the result. <laughs> You said that Daryl Waltrip was a wise guy. Yeah, he was. That's not the way that Jeff put it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Some... pray tell. How did Jeff put it? <laughs> well, Jeff called Daryl a smart ass. There you go. <laughs> hey, tomato, tomato, you know, take your <laughs> pick. Here's where Jeff was coming from. Because he had raced there so many times, Daryl and a lot of other people considered him the guy to beat at Nashville. And they go to Nashville in 1978, and Daryl's like, y'all better watch out. I've got a new car. I'm about to show you what's what. That sounds like him. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first race at Nashville that year, Kel leads all 420 laps, and we're going to talk about that event in depth in our second segment. He beats pole sitter Lenny Pond by two full laps, and Daryl finishes 26th after falling out early with a rear end problem. So they go back to Nashville a month or so later, and Kale has a little bit of an off night. He only leads 411 <laughs> laps that event, and Daryl <laughs> does finish second, but again, he's two laps back, Steve. There's one thing going on during this time, and in fact, it started a couple of years earlier. Junior Johnson's cars were almost unbeatable on the short tracks, whether it be Nashville, Bristol, Martinsville, North Wilkesboro, Richmond. Junior's cars were just extremely tough, and this carried on after Kale was finished with the team, and Daryl came on board. Daryl came on Junior's cars, and he became the king of the short tracks. Junior was just almost unbeatable on those short tracks. I think what happened, and Jeff did mention it in the interview, they did everything that they could to make sure that those cars were as bulletproof as possible. They did not sure. want to get into a situation where things were falling off the car, where things were breaking or anything like that. Another big difference between Kale and DW was this. Kale told his crew when he drove for Junior Johnson, he said, boys, just get it close and I'll make up the difference. And the hotter and more miserable a day it was, the better Cal liked it because, you know, we, we laugh about him wanting to slow the cars down at Talladega. We laugh about him wanting to shorten the races at Martinsville or whatever, but Cal Yarbrough was tough. No denying that he was very, very tough. He could manhandle a car pretty well when it needed to be. Daryl, on the other hand, he made the car and the crew evidently do all the work. He wanted the car as close to perfect as he could possibly get it. So he could drive it as smooth as he could possibly drive it. And if need be, maybe have something left over in the gas tank physically at the end of the day himself. So there's a big difference there. Kale yeah. was willing to manhandle a car. He was willing to wrestle the car but Daryl wanted to finesse it. I think you pointed out the difference in styles very, very well. Daryl was not known as a rough and tumble type of driver. He was known as a finesse type of driver. Other way around for Kale. Uh, guys like Kale and, and Buddy Baker, they just were not known for finesse. They were just known for brute strength. As we mentioned in the intro, Jeff was there for the 1979 Daytona 500. And again, it's a perspective of an event that we had heard so much about over the years. Jeff could remember very clearly Kale drafting off of Donnie as they took the white flag. And at the time, Kale was in perfect position. He was setting Donnie up to make that slingshot pass. And then, of course, they had to listen to the rest of the lap over the PA. And they heard the announcer calling the wreck. And then they heard the announcer calling the fight. 
And when they heard about the fight, Henry Benfield and a couple other guys start running towards turn four to get to where the fight is taking place. Now, Steve, that was going to be a pretty long little run there. Yeah, especially since the fight was in turn three. (laughs) Jeff starts to follow, and he looks back, and Junior has taken off his radio, and he is starting to pack up the pits himself. He's the team owner. He's paying other people to do that. He saw the guys run off, and he was told right at that time, your driver is in a fight over there with Bobby Allison in the third turn. And Junior took off his radio and says, I don't give a damn. I lost the race. I'm getting the hell out of here. And he starts packing the gear up. This is Junior packing everything up. Junior had won the 1960 Daytona 500 as a driver and then a couple more as an owner. He won his first Daytona 500 as an owner with Leroy Yarbrough in 1969, and then the other with Kale in 1977, a couple of years before. So it did mean something to Junior to win the Daytona 500, but the car's wadded up. There's nothing he can do about it. And so he's just going to get ready and pack up and go to the next race. So Jeff saw Junior doing this, and he stopped in his tracks, and he went back to the pits. And he started helping Junior pack up everything just like he would have after any other race. Well, that was a smart thing to do because, let's face it, that was his job. And the other thing is, I don't know why these guys took off running. They were never going to get to the third turn. And what are they going to do when they get there? Were you going to be the one to argue with Henry Benfield? Well, no, you never argue with Henry. But But that was a natural instinct, I think, for every crewman is to go out and protect their driver. In a very real sense, I think that Junior and Kale and the rest of their team were victims of their own success because Jeff's first three years with Junior and Kale, they won the championship. And that was something that had never been accomplished in NASCAR before was winning three straight championships. But if you win three straight, you eventually, you come to expect that kind of success every single year. And sooner or later, you're simply not going to win everything in sight. Let's face it, Rick. I think you'll agree with me on that. That that kind of thing happens to nearly all successful teams. Jimmy Johnson, as we all know, won five championships in a row and seven in all. And look at the last year or so of his career with Hendrick. Decidedly unproductive. Same situation here. Anything else other than the championship is going to be a disappointment. And in 1980, Kale wound up deciding that he was going to leave and go to MC Anderson's team, despite the fact that he came this close. Yeah to win in another championship for junior. And I mean, this close, I mean, Dale Earnhardt attempted, tried everything he could possibly try to give that championship away. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but Dale still won the championship. Kale came up short and Steve, I don't know what this says, but here is another huge. What if from this episode, junior was so upset that Kale was leaving to go to MC Anderson's team. He basically wanted to trade drivers right then and there after the Charlotte race. Evidently he found out at Charlotte that Kale was going to be leaving and that was it. And he basically wanted Benny to come finish out the season for him and for Kale to go ahead and move on down to South Carolina. Well, Junior was upset, but Junior is a pretty smart guy. And you want to talk about a twist. When Junior finally calmed down and realized that Kale was leaving, and he needed to get the quality type of driver to go ahead and try to win more championships. And who does he come up with? Kale's arch rival, D.W., I thought that was pretty interesting myself. Like Junior said, I wanted to get that mouthy old boy from Tennessee in my car. (laughs) (laughs) After the fall Charlotte race that year, Kel was second behind Dell Earnhardt in points, 115 points back. 
with, I believe there were three races remaining. Benny was fourth in the standings, 280 points behind. So Benny more than likely wasn't going to win the championship, but from what Jeff said, Junior didn't care. If Kel wanted to leave, uh, there's the door. Yeah, but he got past that. It's, you know, like I said earlier, he got past that and decided to go for the man that he thought could win more championships for him. And of course, that was Daryl. And guess what? <laughs> Junior was right. <laughs> and just wait until you hear what Jeff had to say about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And Steve, this week, Brian just put out all the stops and he posted T-shirts of everybody who's ever raced in NASCAR. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to doubt you one bit knowing him. That's not much of an exaggeration. I mean, he had everybody this week, so... Again, listeners, if you have any kind of interest in vintage racing apparel or vintage rock and roll t-shirts, do yourself a favor and head over and check out Brian's inventory. And you can do that by following him on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens. And you can check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the June 8th, 1978 issue of Grand National Seed featured coverage of that year's first race at Nashville. They're in my hometown. Yes, sir. <laughs> Steve, Lenny Pond claimed the top spot in qualifying, and it couldn't have come a moment too soon because he and crew chief Herb Nab had gone at it at Charlotte just the race before. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, but Lenny was a short track guy. And Nashville is a short track, so they've really got a shot at this thing. He and Kel Yarborough led the field to the green flag, and Kel lit the afterburners, and yeah, he was gone. Absolutely gone. And in less than 60 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Kel began lapping cars on just the fifth lap of the race, and then he passed Bruce Hill for 10th place, on lap 31 by lap 55 there were just five cars remaining on the lead lap lap 100 he lapped lenny pond leaving just him and dw on the lead lap but then daryl fell out with the rear end problem and that was that that was a good old-fashioned country butt kicking that's that's what it was (laughs) kel said in the race lead It was one of the easiest races I've ever had. The car worked so well, it was easy for me. Easy race? Ah, That sounds about like it. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't get much easier than that. But then again, that's the kind of cars Junior produced on the short tracks. They were always strong. It was only the third time in NASCAR history that a driver had led every lap of a race that was more than 250 miles in length. Daryl Derringer first accomplished the feat in 1967, and Kel did it at Bristol in March of 1973. And Steve, I was trying to think. I would guess that the last driver to do that would have been Jeff Burton at New Hampshire in the year 2000. Yeah, I think that's right. I can't think of any other since. Well, I'm sure social media would tell us about it. (laughs) Stand by, Rick. Steve, in an earlier episode, we talked about this happening in another race at Nashville the year before, but the first 12 drivers in this event were on a lap by themselves. (laughs) That's hard to imagine. Kel was the only driver in the lead lap. Lenny Pond was two laps back in second. Richard Petty was third, four laps down. Dave Marcus was five laps down. Neil Bonnet was seven laps back. Grant Agcox, 11. Ty Scott, 12 laps back. Richard Childress, 15 laps back. Buddy Arrington, 19 laps back. DK Ulrich was 10th, and he was, Steve, (laughs) DK Ulrich was 10th, 
and he was 25 laps down. (laughs) (laughs) James Hilton was 30 laps back. J.D. McDuffie was 32 laps back. And then Bobby Waywack and Dick Brooks were the first cars in the final rundown that were on the same lap. And they were both 33 laps down. <laughs> Do you think Kale might have been in a different area code? <laughs> oh, mercy. There were only two caution flags in this event. And the last came out on lap 319 when Sterling Marlin, who was driving in relief of his daddy cuckoo, Sterling lost an engine. And that was Kale's closest call of the night. Kale said in the race lead, I saw that Sterling was about to blow and I really pushed it going into the turn. I just managed to get by. There was smoke and fire everywhere. When it's your night, it's your night. I'm telling you the truth. This was the first race for Nashville's new pit road. And like basically any other pit road now, it stretched from the entrance in turn four all the way down to the first turn. You've said before that you never attended a race at Nashville, but I can tell you this. It was something to see before the new pit road. Teams had pitted on the quarter mile track. So they would come down pit road. They would go to their pit stall on the quarter mile track. They would do a lap evidently of the quarter mile track, and then they would come back out onto the racetrack. As you can imagine, that got very confusing and it led to all kinds of scoring foul ups. <laughs> Rick, I can't imagine how you could keep up with anything on that kind of arrangement. And even then, the new pit road got fairly mixed reviews. Most said that it was better, but they also felt like it was still too crowded. Kale put it into perspective. He said it is 100% better than it was, but it could be 100% better than it is. My only concern is for the safety of the crews during the pit stops. There's simply not enough room down there. If some changes aren't made sooner or later, somebody will get badly hurt. I will say this. What Nashville did was the model for things to come. Because you remember several short tracks, you pitted on the front stretch or you pitted on the back stretch. Several of those tracks, among them Bristol and Martinsville, created their pit road to start in the fourth turn and go all the way around into the first turn, just like this model at Nashville. Well, I think now in order to make things exciting on pit road, I think they need to add a quarter mile track and they need to add a figure eight track and have cars pit that way. What is wrong with you, Rick? Hey man, I have a promoter's mind. That's what it is. Yeah. Oh, okay. We'll leave it at that. There was a story in this issue in which Lenny Pond and Harry Rainier both said that things were just fine after the blow up at Charlotte between Lenny and crew chief Herb Nabb. And again, we have discussed this a few times before things weren't good and they did win at Talladega a couple of months later, but Harry did try to hire DW and it just seemed like now 40 some odd years later, that was just a situation that was not going to work out. I don't think DW was interested anyway in going over to Harry. And there's, he had a pretty good thing at Diegard at the time. But as we all know, it wasn't a year later that Daryl's trying to get his way out of Diegard to go to Junior Johnson. There was also in this issue what amounted to an editorial written by art director David Chobat on the treatment or lack thereof that photographers received at the racetrack. David, if he were still around, he would have taken exception to that. You don't call them photographers. You call them photojournalists. That's right. That's right. (laughs) A photographer is somebody who sets up in a studio with lights and everything and takes posed photos. A (laughs) photojournalist is somebody who captures history as it happens. Well, that's the way David approached his job. He was the only staff photographer that we had as seen at that time. Uh, and he was also the guy that did the layout of how scene was to look. David was a very, very busy guy, and uh, he took his work very seriously. I don't know that I knew that Shobat did the layout. Did he really? Yeah, he did that. He'd come in on uh, Monday morning and start laying the paper out, and uh, it would go to the printer that same day. I knew David, and I worked with him my first job in racing. But who was the David Shobat that you knew? Well, he was now, be quiet. careful 
This is <laughs> no. a family show. <laughs> he was quite the character. I admired his work ethic. I mean, he was constantly working. And he was also the kind of guy that never wanted to ruffle feathers, just wanted to do his job and do it very well. He set the groundwork for the photography that became the signature of scene. He had several freelance photographers working with him, but they were all extremely good. And what he started evolved into a staff of multi-photographers and some great freelancers out there. Steve, did you ever buy anything out of his little yellow photo box? <laughs> no, he always gave me one. Thank you. <laughs> yes, David would show up at the track with a yellow Kodak box full the photos of crewmen, of race cars, everything that he was taking at the track. And I don't mind saying it, he would sell those pictures to the crewmen right out of the box there at the track. And frankly, back in those days, uh, I didn't really see anything wrong with that. I couldn't tell you how many people that we have talked to and, you know, you'll ask them about photographs and everything. And sure enough, basically every photo that they have is a David Showbat photo. That's right. That's right. <laughs> our photographers, I'm sorry, our photojournalists were so good at what they did for that publication. And in honor of that, I wanted to share this story from our reunion episode, more than a hundred shows back, Steve. This was episode 26. So this has been a while. Yeah. Okay. That we did the reunion show. In this clip, Jim Fluharty, who was a full-time photographer at Scene and Illustrated for many, many years. He talks about what it took to get film from the racetrack back to the office and then get the flats from the office to the printer. One of the things that has always fascinated me back in the old film days when you guys shot on film mm -hmm. was the process of actually getting that film from the racetrack back to the office. Right. Tell me about some of those escapades. I can remember when... Uh I guess it was a spring Bristol race. They'd run on Sunday afternoon. So we would get to the track at maybe 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning because we wanted to set up some remote cameras. We'd cover the race all day long. We'd drive back to Charlotte to process the film, or it was in Concord, North Carolina at that time. Stay up all night processing film, making prints. We'd be there all day long to uh, lay out the paper. And then I would drive the paper to Greensboro Monday evening. Would you really? Take the flats up there, and then I would go to bed um, until 4 in the morning. Wow. I'd get up at 4 in the morning and go to the press and start proofing the paper as they started rolling the presses. Um, and then hopefully I'd be out of there by noon, and then I could sleep the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and then back to work on Wednesday and start all over again. So back in those days, back in the 90s, um, there was not many time off, you know, you were working 16 hours a day, but we loved it. You know, it wasn't yeah. a job. It was our passion. It was our life, you know, wouldn't change a thing on that. Steve, that was some kind of schedule, wasn't it? I don't see how they did it. I really don't, but they did it so well. I can't say that enough. So listeners, the next time you come across a photo on the internet and you tweet it out without any kind of credit. If nothing else, remember the kind of work that it took for that shot to ever save the light of day. So, Steve, I'd, I'd better stop before I get myself in trouble. <laughs> but those photographers, those photojournalists, they worked their behinds off. And, yeah, they were a good many of them were quite the characters. But when you work like they do, you can afford to be a character. I agree with 100%, Rick, 100%. Finally, Rob Griggs had this story in his column. Ed Negree had a scary incident on the way to the racetrack in Nashville, just outside of Knoxville on I-40. Ed was about to pass another truck in his team's transporter when something came off the other truck and the two collided. And it took Ed a quarter of a mile before he was able to get the brakes working well enough to start slowing down. This is the scary part. His wife, Faye, who was one of the early officers in the Winston Cup Racing Wives Auxiliary, she went halfway through the windshield, but was supposedly unhurt. Hard to imagine. Although there was heavy damage to the transporter, the race car itself was unhurt. Steve, the other truck actually flipped. 
so this was not just a little scrape up on the interstate. This was a big accident. And to tell you the truth, I'd forgotten all about that story. Ed was truly, Ed and Faye were truly lucky to get through that. I'm not exactly sure where this took place on I-40 coming out of Knoxville, going into Knoxville on the way to Nashville. But I've traveled that road. I couldn't even tell you how many, 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 many times I've traveled that road between Knoxville and Nashville, I-40. But Ed proceeded on to Nashville, and he finished 27th in the 30-car field after completing just 135 laps due to overheating. Well, given what happened to him on the way to that race, you ask me finishing 27th with quite an achievement. You're lucky to even start the race. And that says a lot about what it means to be a race car driver. If something like that had happened to most mere mortals, oh yeah, they would just say, you know what? I'm going back to the house. Uh, I'd, be, I'd be one of them. <laughs> I mean, his, his wife has gone through the windshield of the truck yeah. and he, he goes on to Nashville and races. Incredible. But that's, <laughs> you're exactly right. That was the makeup of the race car driver. Hi, I'm Larry McReynolds, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, our pleas for reviews on iTunes have not fallen on deaf ears. (laughs) We continue to get great reviews on iTunes. Rob C2C wrote, As an avid reader of NASCAR scene for years, I've been missing a NASCAR publication like that. This podcast and the interviews are so amazingly done and each with its own personal touch. I was so impressed with listening to my first couple of episodes. I have decided to go back and start at the beginning. Thank you both for bringing the history of NASCAR alive again. Wow, that is great. That's just great. See, that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to keep the history of NASCAR alive. If you don't remember it, that's the day that you don't have a future. That's right. As a a very wise man once said. (laughs) (laughs) So listeners, if you can, please take the time to give us a five-star rating on iTunes and also a written review on iTunes. Because again, it's not just about getting a pat on the back. It's about helping convince other people to listen. And that's what it's all about is, is getting more people to listen, educating new fans and helping old school race fans. Remember the good old days. And we certainly offer you our gratitude. Thank you very much. So I got to run in the rain this morning a little bit. Yeah. I I heard you might have done that. That's what you like though. Well, I would rather run in the rain than any other time. Hands down bar none. But man, my Steve, my back is still killing me. I don't know uh, what I'm gonna do. I, I I don't know. <laughs>